0: Hello and welcome to the Plants and Pipettes podcast. My
1: name is hey. Johan and I'm Tegan. Hey.
0: Hi. How have you been, Tegan? What's going on?
1: Uh, so much is going on. It's been a busy, busy week or two. My mom has been in, in town and there has been chaos. I mean, not chaos, but just like lots of <laughs> things all the time. Like, yeah, out all the time, doing the things, seeing the things. We saw... um. The, the to kill a mockingbird play which mm-hmm. was really really good really sad but really good um yeah went to see some art went to see some museums that kind of stuff oh, yeah. strolling around outside so, all the lovely things
0: sounds much more exciting than what i've been up to which is just parent stuff
1: <laughs> yay i did so, also really interesting um, I did also now just to watch a documentary, I just came from watching a documentary, actually something organised by my work, but the documentary is sort of, it's kind of work related, it's like sort of science and, um, yeah, climate changey stuff even, it's Breaking Boundaries, the Science of Our Planets, and it's this documentary by David Attenborough, it's fairly new, it came out last year, and it's sort of looking at these nine different planetary boundaries, So um, things like climate change, things like ozone depletion, things like acidification of the oceans, um, biodiversity, the use and accumulation of nitrogen and phosphorus. So all these sorts of different things in the world and the complexity of the world that we can sort of push the boundary of and then get to bad places with if we go too far. So, I mean, as you can probably guess by that, the documentary was quite depressing. Um, <laughs> <laughs> turns out we're not doing super well. We we might have pushed some of these um, boundaries already. There was this is originally a paper in Nature in two thousand and nine, I think, and then a follow up paper in two thousand and fifteen in Science, and sort of they've been updating this where we are on the state of all of these different boundaries, sort of like where we are as humanity. Um, and the documentary was discussing these things. I think, yeah, apart from being depressing, it was a little, it was a bit of a weird mashup of a documentary. They had really, they had really weird graphics in it, honestly, which I found a bit unnerving, sort of, um, to, to visualize these. I think the problem is, a lot of these things, the boundaries exist for, it's very hard to visualize. So like, ocean mm-hmm. acidification, you can visualize an ocean, but visualizing acidification specifically, it's hard. Climate change <laughs> yeah. is pretty hard. Um, like, the the availability of freshwater like all of these things are hard to actually visualize so because of that they were re- relying a little bit on graphics but also this idea of going across these boundaries these planetary boundaries the original paper has this sort of circle and you imagine you know the sphere of the earth and then pie segments and it shows going from sort of green in the middle where we're in the safe zone and then into this intermediate yellow zone and into the the red zone now, firstly, like throughout the documentary, they kept on referring to that as the danger zone, which was not helpful because every time I just kept on hearing danger zone in my head, which makes it hard for me personally to take it seriously. I realize that's my problem and not their problem, but whatever. Um, but then they also had like the danger zone happening and the the graphic was sort of these morph suit animated people, you know, men, women and children walking outwards and the ground becoming more and more red, so it was very—I don't know—it was not not to my taste that kind of thing. And also a lot of times, <laughs> so when they had sort of a few main scientists, um, and as they were speaking, they had these kind of like electronic spiders. It was like spiders slash fireworks, like kind of flashing in the background. I think there were sort of. They were almost also new Ronnie networky things as well. So they were trying to show maybe connectivity. I think that was this underlining theme. But it was I just found it very distracting having these little like
0: mm-hmm.
1: network fireworks in the background. Um Yeah, and then also so it was like a one and a half hour documentary, and most of it is about all of how we are going into the danger zone or are already in the danger zone for um, some of the things. And then the last maybe fifteen minutes is like, oh, but you know. There are some ways that we can come back from the danger zone and, you know, planting trees and things like that. And I also Mm -hmm. I don't know. I there was at one point I think I wrote you a message about two hours ago while I was writing the documentary. And the Mm -hmm. message was something like the the last thing we can do or something. The There's one more change that may be vital. Imagine that in David (laughs) Can you do David Attenborough's voice? There's one, more, there's one do- more change that may be vital. Something like that. <laughs> um, imagine I'm very deep, resonant male voice. Uh, so this is after they had talked about sort of, you know, becoming vegetarian is one of the things. Um, minimizing your own perso- personal impacts. And I was like, okay. And then there's one more change that may be vital. And it was something about re-reusing or, like, minimizing waste. But I don't know. At that point, if you say there's one more change that may be vital, I expect kind of, like, overthrow the government or, you know, you know, <laughs> yes, take on I the corporations, saying. like, start again from scratch, reinvigorate, like, it's something...
0: A global uh, revolution. Yeah, I, I, um,
1: <laughs> I understand that personal responsibility is important and that, you know, personal action is also important, but... Yeah.
0: <laughs> yeah, it's 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 the I, problem I that I also always have. It's you can't have systemic change with individual action. You can do some things and it would be better if everybody would behave in a more sustainable way. That's definitely and it would be a better world, but it's not fixing the world if everybody is just suddenly going zero waste and uh, riding the bicycle all the time because that's not where, at least for example in Germany, the main CO2 emissions come from. They come, yeah. th- They come from burning coal to make electricity. And I, as an individual, can't change that. Like I can opt in to buy the green electricity, but that doesn't mean that like somebody erects a, a solar plant in my name. It just means that like in the share and mixing of electricity, my, like I pay a higher price, and then it's sort of counted as like eco-electricity but it's is not working I think like I would this.
1: appreciate more if it was a bit more spoofy and it was sort of you know saying because they were saying they didn't say go vegan but they were saying you know flexitarianism you know reducing your meat consumption these are all helpful things I think they should have just shown really disgusting looking tofu and floppy vegetables you know you have this sort of montage of really unappetizing vegetarian vegan dishes and then being like or if you prefer to eat a steak every day, how about considering overthrowing your local government? <laughs> 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 Actually making a real change. Um, <laughs> these thoughts and opinions are my own and I do not reflect <laughs> to anybody else. Yeah, I, I don't know. I, I the, the, the documentary was interesting for me because I'm not sure. I don't think people would watch it if they weren't already quite invested in that concept. And then I'm not sure. Like, I think the message was quite depressing and I'm not sure if that's... I don't know where we're at with warning documentaries at this stage. I don't know if that would really Mm -hmm. inspire somebody to... I wonder. I wonder if people get inspired from those kind of things or not. I'm not sure.
0: Yeah, I I think the same. Like, this is literally stuff... Like, in the early 2000s, there was this big Al Gore movie that was already telling all of it. And Mm. it has been rerun countless of times. There have been updates to that movie, plus a bazillion of other things that all tell the same story. So by now, I don't think it's an information issue or an awareness issue or a being alert issue. It's like other socioeconomic issues of people like not willing or not being able to afford doing the changes, plus a very resilient system to change that doesn't really want to go away from carbon fuels. And so therefore... I think it's like it's it's not bad to have these movies. I don't want to like say we shouldn't have this this kind of movies. Uh, but to me, it just it just adds to my own anxiety, anxiety about the issue. Same with like the Don't Look Up movie. This was so. Like,
1: <laughs> I enjoyed that a lot. I think you like and it I felt differently. Was, it,
0: it, was, it was a good movie. It, I also sort of enjoyed watching the movie, but it's just like added to my anxiety. And now whenever I see bogus statements from high officials i just have this movie in my head i just think to myself yeah don't look up don't look up when we have like <laughs> the highest temperatures in central europe since i don't know how long uh, one of the longest drought uh, droughts we have had here and then they're discussing how we should never get away from fossil fuel cars and we should um not ban ban them and instead keep them around forever uh i just feel like don't look up don't look up it's like nothing's happening everything's fine just keep doing what we've done in the past everything's fine and so yeah i don't know but i just uh i just watched the trailer and we're linking to it as well and i saw like the graphics that you made and they're like a little bit weird like they had in the trailer the, the people walking on that like the weird humanoid figures and then the, the segmented. Graph. This is also something that when I see it in infographics, I'm always like, is this really the best way to represent your data? I don't
1: think... I mean, it's also a... These people just kept on moving forward. And there's... So one of the the nine things is actually the ozone layer. And ozone layer is one of those things that we've been very successful at. You know, mm-hmm. we damaged the ozone layer a lot. And now we've actually really gone back on that. And we've improved a lot of things. The ozone layer is largely repairing itself. Like, I mean... It's yeah. been a, a huge success story. They didn't show the people really... I mean, they showed the lines moving back, but they didn't show the people moving back. I don't know. When you show people moving forward in a mass, it also creates this kind of feeling of it's going to keep going. It's it's inevitable. It's continuous. Like, you know, this is the, the lemmings going towards the edge of the cliff. I'm not sure that that's... You know, there's always a discussion now about how to encourage people to envision a different future. And the fact that, yes, it's important to say that things can be awful. But if we can't envision a more hopeful future, then that also will stop us from ever getting there. And mm-hmm. I, I'm sort of now there in that space where I wonder, you know, if you're going to show the doom and gloom, is there a way you can show something more hopeful and not not in a fake way but in a sort of like here's here's how we act way that goes beyond yeah eat less meat i think
0: yeah yeah i think that that would also be what i would be happy about something that's really showing best practices that are at least on a medium scale and then showing like look if we would all strive towards this thing which happen through systemic change and there are these examples in the world like different countries have different approaches and some of them work quite well and show these and say like look this is an option this is something we can do this is not something where we are completely helpless we can change stuff and let's try Mm -hmm. to work towards that um this is what i would even
1: showing things like the breakdown of being like okay so we make all this carbon dioxide we're making all these you know we're releasing all these greenhouse gases where are they coming from you know this could be helpful to say this is coming from here and here and here what does that make you think about how you interact with those industries or i don't know anyway shall we talk about plants
0: let's talk about plants the paper of the week.
1: This week I chose the paper of the week. It's from the journal Plants and it's by anne Verena Reutmann and colleagues. And I literally um, chose it because it seemed kind of sexy. And that <laughs> comes up directly in the title, which is the basis on which I chose it. The variation of residual sexuality rates among reproductive development in apomictic. Tetraploids of paspalum so i think before we <laughs> jump into this one i'm going to sort of define some of the terms in that title the first one is quite easy yeah. paspalum what's a paspalum
0: yeah. i i also had to look it up i i went through it and was on my computer just like look up look up look up um, paspalum is a grass if i re- remember correctly it's a grass yeah, species. Yeah, it's just a
1: genus of, of grasses. The common name is crown grass, among a few other things. Um it's called crown grasses because it makes kind of crown like, you know, growths, circular growths. I, I I guess I was looking at some photos. Um, in some parts of the world it's it's even eaten. It's grown as a millet, which is one of mm. our our favorite <laughs> food sources. Millet <laughs> seems to be like we get a PTSD generic term. From that <laughs> Yeah, we read a book once which had a lot of millet in it guys. It's it's a, it's not a very complex story but we've yeah. been traumatized since then. Um, <laughs> so this is just a grass species. Um, but within or it's a genus in fact, sorry, but within this genus there are some tetraploids which is the the other big word in in that title. And tetraploids are basically just organisms that have kind of double the amount of chromosomes as we normally think of organisms as having. So humans, we have uh, like two sets of each chromosome. So one from my mom and one from our dad. So double, it's called diploid. Um, and then if you have four sets instead of two sets, that's tetraploids. And being tetraploid is, is not super uncommon in plant species. Um, often you get... And I
0: think especially in grasses, right? Grasses are notorious for having... Polyploid states where they're crossing um, uh, between each other and then they're Notorious. just not, not completely. Maybe
1: it's the wrong yeah, word. Yeah, one species hooks up with another species and instead of like doing sex the proper way where you give half of your genetic um, material down, they just like combine everything and yeah. you end up with just. They're
0: just adding together. And weed, for bits. example, has six um, of them. It's hex- hexapolyploid. Uh, hexaploid. Hexaploid. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Okay, so we've got uh, tetraploids of paspalum, so this just means that some of these paspalum grasses happen to be tetraploids, which is kind of convenient here, um, because that's what we're using in this study. And then the final big word was the apomictic, and this just means apo is kind of like against and mictic is mixing, so it's they don't ah. like to mix. And in this term, the t- the the mixing is kind of the sexy mixing. So specifically, <laughs> the mixing that's happening after meiosis, when you have sexual reproduction, you've got sort of the mixing of the the bits of genetic material from two different parents. So yeah. apomictic is basically plants that avoid sexual reproduction. Yeah, it but
0: there I uh, have a question? Because I didn't fully understand it there when I when I looked it up. Because for example um when arabidopsis self is wish with itself so it takes mm-hmm. its own pollen puts it on its own st- uh, stamen and then the egg, se- uh, the, egg uh, the ovule is uh, fertilized with the pollen from the same plant and then it's sort of going through the sexual route but instead of taking foreign pollen its own pollen um is that then sexual reproduction? Even that though That is it's
1: still s- sexual reproduction. As we all know, sex with yourself still counts as sex. That is still Arabidopsis having sex. And if
0: uh, a strawberry makes a runner and you have a clonal asexual reproduction happening, that's also not apomictic, right? Because so- it's going not through the the Excel stage, but it, it, it's like a completely different thing. It's sort of just like an off growth and then makes its own new plant.
1: Yeah, that's coming from body tissues or somatic tissue. So, I think it, I was having a look at some of the definition stuff, and if you went with the kind of base meaning of the word, you could say that this that is like the the very broadest term of apomictic could include any asexual reproduction, but it it doesn't usually. So usually people use it to mean. Like the the non sexual reproduction that happens, but it's happening through the sexy parts. So basically, what's going on here? It's it's not your runners, it's not your budding, it's not your little bits of cacti falling off and making other cacti or you know tubers or anything. This is specifically when there's sexy bits, the egg, particularly the female part, and that kind of just decides not to take on a sperm and instead to just sort of divide itself and become an an organism by itself. So it doesn't go through the meiosis and then the sexy parts it just like so it, kind it of ma- bypasses.
0: It makes seeds um but seeds that are that's never seen sperm before. Like
1: Yeah, so then the seeds are also complete clones of the mother. So it is still like clonally the same as as the mother. Um which we can come into a little bit later, but yeah. But it's it's the the sort of strict definition and the definition that's generally used is not that other type of asexual reproduction.
0: Yeah, that's really cool because I I had no idea that this exists, that you can have sort of the ovule dividing itself and, and ripening and becoming seeds without the other part um i think it, like in the, uh, i read some some bits in the introduction that there's like multiple steps that are skipped mm-hmm. in the ovule development where they just sort of find bypasses where usually the plant would wait for the sperm to arrive but they're like hey we take this bypass here so we don't need the sperm and then there are also, like some other sort of steps in there that they they work around because when there's no sperm there's half of the dna missing so they they make up for that as well on like a later stage and so on pretty cool yeah
1: you can there's the different ways you can kind of make up for that by just not dividing in half in the first place or you can yeah make some mitch anyway um yeah it's it's cool and it's also a bit of a thing to get your head around because in my head like for me when it then was talking about seeds in this paper i was like but hang on where are there seeds this was not a this was not sexual reproduction it's like no no there is still seeds they still make seeds they still make young in the same way it's just all the mother, no, yeah. no pollen coming into it. I think one of the really cool things is that most apomictic plants out there, they're faculative, which means that they can be sexy if they want to. And I'm using want in a very um generous <laughs> term. But basically, depending on the taxa, so you know, the species itself, depending on some of the actual features, including whether they have diploid or tetraploid, so the ploidy level. So if they've got these like extra genomes, four genomes as opposed to four chromosome pairs instead of uh, sets instead of two. Um, also at different stages of the plant, they can have um, different tendencies towards being more in the sexy way or in the less sexy way. And I think this is a really kind of a cool strategy because sexual reproduction has a lot of advantages it basically creates more genetic diversity so we get we can get genetic diversity through things like mutations but you know mixing up those genes with with your neighbor is really the best way to get diversity and diversity is great because it means you've got more variation amongst your offspring and more chances that you'll have like interesting traits that will better the survival so it's cool to have some asexual um some sexual reproduction happening but then it also has some limitations you know it costs energy to do it you've got to find the person of the other sex or the 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 plant of the other sex or you can do it with yourself but you know there's some effort it can take some more time um resource speaking resource speaking it's kind of it's it's more it's more work So if you can do both of them, you can basically occasionally get a little bit of diversity in, make a whole lot of different organisms. And then the ones that are doing really well, they can just like go crazy and make all these clones, which means that they can massively expand their numbers really, really fast and just take over. And then, you know, every now and then bump back into sexual um, reproduction, get some more diversity. So you've got this like really cool way mm-hmm. to both d- grow really rapidly which is the the asexual but also then occasionally have these bumps of diversity which will help you with your long-term survival especially if there's things like changing conditions so like having the mix is just really really cool to me
0: do you know if they always produce pollen um these uh, these grasses or do they also only produce the pollen when they sort of the conditions trigger that that going into that root?
1: I am actually not certain. So they did mention that there's different, there's basically two different pathways involved here. You've got the sexual pathway, so the pathway going towards sexiness and the apomictic pathway. And they exist at both times in the plant and they're competing with each other, basically. And there's different things at different levels that can influence these so i think there is pollen but i'm not sure if like every plant is producing pollen all the time but pollination timing um flowering time water stress other environmental conditions even light they've wrote genetic disharmony in seminal tissues um these things can all influence whether the processes go forward but that's more at the molecular like that's kind of more at the internal level of molecular processes and going through as opposed to Making pollen in the first place So I'm not really sure about that mm-hmm. So one thing to note, There's different ways to be apomyctics. Um, There's sort of different processes To get that seed created from just the mother Um, And there's also sort of different Yeah, mechanistic models But I think we don't go into that here Partially because I realise That I'm not very <laughs> into all of this Like <laughs> genetics, plant sexy stuff It's, it's a bit, yeah
0: yeah, yeah, I always skipped um, the details around the flower development and then the, the ovule and the, the seed germination because it's quite a complex system. And it was always, like, I was always interested in stuff that happens in the leaves. I was like, yeah, I, I don't care. Like, if there's no chloroplasts, I don't care. And <laughs> like in the seeds, you usually don't find the chloroplasts. So I was like, yeah, okay, they, they have their own magic going on. Um, I'm looking yeah, at the green all this stuff. stuff-
1: I think occasionally we try to look into um things which have where you've got the the competition of the f- female genes with the male genes or the male genes with the female genes at the moment of fertilization and how that defines the development of the seed and also sort of the endosperm the the placental tissue basically and every time we do that my brain just goes crazy because there's so many things at plays and it's like yes yeah. and the the female part is actually dividing into this way and although there's only one cell there's actually the equivalent of three cells and I just yeah, it's it's complex. It just feels <laughs> overly complex as a process, which I think um
0: Yeah, yeah, exactly. So let's let's not go into the the meth- mechanism exactly. But why did they pick this plant? Why did they pick this grass? Because I have not heard of paspalum as a model organism yet.
1: So they chose this species, this genus basically because they, there's been some studies already on this in this field. Mm-hmm. And in this case, they had two different species. They had um, Paspalum maculosum and Paspalum chromio*. Cro- cro- Let's try that again.
0: Chromiorizum.
1: There we go. Well done. Um, and they took <laughs> some individuals from natural populations. They had 27 individuals. All of them are tetraploid in this case, but four natural populations from the... Say it again.
0: From the cromiorizum.
1: <laughs> and two populations from the...
0: Maculosum. <laughs>
1: yeah well done and then they basically went through and did different experiments with some sort of counting Um, it's obviously (laughs) more than just counting with your fingers uh, but looking to see which how how often we're going towards the sexual and hair, how often we're going to this asexual apomixic pathway. Mm -hmm. so they looked at the stage of ovule development then they looked at the seeds that had already formed um to see if they formed from either of the two pathways like broad pathways and then they looked also at the progeny to see um what genetic mixes the progeny had so mm. they found sort of a mix of everything i think what was quite interesting was that it didn't just differ depending on the species but even within the species it differed a lot so in the p maculosum they had these two populations and one population basically made seeds that were 50-50 from the sexual and the apomixic pathway. But the Uh other population, 85% of them were like not fussed about having sex. So they were the (laughs) apomixic. Whereas from the P. chromium, again?
0: From your horizon.
1: <laughs> Thank you. Um, it was always preferring no sex, but even then the, it varied from like three quarters to like almost 100% like lack of sex. Mm-hmm. So like lots of variations, even within the same species, depending on which population, which wild population it came from, which could be genetic differences. It could also be like the environmental conditions. We, we didn't really look into this, but some variation. Um, and then also they looked at the progeny and that they found that, in some cases there were like generally they were mostly clones, so basically they both they had sort of the the DNA of the mother. Um they didn't do complete sequencing that this was based on some, some small sequencing um regions. But there was always some evidence that there had been sexy times happening. And they said that this was the the first report of progeny that had definitely come from sexual reproduction in these previously defined apomictic tetraploids in these specific species. So again, we mm-hmm. sort of had this idea that they, they have these competing pathways and it is possible, but here they have the proof that, like, yes, they are also occasionally quite rarely doing sexual reproduction. And it was less than 10% in in both of the, the species, but it was happening.
0: Uh, so what does this mean then?
1: I don't know what it means beyond this genus specifically. I'm not really actually sure how widespread this tendency is. And as you can see, already within like a single species here, there's a huge difference in the amount of sex versus no sex. I think um, it's just, to me, it's sort of a very cool mechanism. It's a cool thing that plants can do. And I, I think of it specifically in the context of competition and this idea that grasses and grass-like species can very rapidly like come into new habitats and stuff like that again yeah. like not all grasses are doing this but this seems to be like a cool method but I actually I I don't know anything I mean I chose this paper because I don't know anything about these these processes it was just like a very cool
0: yeah it's same like I had no idea that the, there is a sort of bypass way to make seeds and go through all of the like from the outside it looks like There's just like standard sexual reproduction happening, but only when you look into it, you realize it's actually going through this quick bypass route and make clonal offspring of the mother, which is, yeah, I find it very cool.
1: I I think it's interesting when we have more information about what's pushing these pathways, like the competition one way or the other. Um, if there, you know, if there are environmental factors that sort of say, you know, you're you're more stressed now. And now would be a good time to make more diversity, or not? I I wonder if that's how much that's involved. As I said, there was already information that different things might into influence this competition between the sexual and the apomictic pathways, but yeah, it would be cool to have some more idea about this.
0: And if I think about now application, and this is really now far into the future when we would really understand how this works. But I know that sometimes, especially in genetic modification, we try to make plants that don't make viable pollen so they can't outcross into the wild. But it would also be interesting to make plants that just don't accept any pollen from the outside. They just always like they don't care about what pollen's coming in they always stay for um stay clonal copies of the mother plant i know that it doesn't really solve the problem of pollen getting into non agricultural plants um but it could also mean that you can turn off the, the pollen completely and go still make make seeds that are viable if you go into this bypass route but yeah this is completely like um science fiction now because <laughs> this is really far into the future if, um to to do any genetic engineering that that would come to such a result
1: so I found a paper from actually from 20 years ago apomyxic for crop improvement which is yeah saying that basically uh, it simplifies the process of commercial hybrid and cultivar production you can get large scale seed production economically um, so it's a major goal of plant genetic engineering
0: that's yes, yeah so it could be potentially very interesting for agriculture but we need much more research for that so that was the paper variation of residual sexuality rates along reproductive development in apomictic tetraploids of paspalum by anna Verena reutemann and colleagues this is where the fun begins this is where the fun
1: Do you know how you have those um, things where you discover a fact and then you just forget about it and immediately discover it six months later and you sort of rediscover the same fact every few months for the next 20 years of your life? (laughs) So I would like to mention that I just realized that there is a plant called babaco. And I'm sure I've (laughs) discovered this before, um, but this is my new possibly before discovery. I was looking around the different uh, journals and I found a publication titled File dynamics and coat protein analysis of babaco mosaic virus in Ecuador and there's a well-known mosaic virus called tobacco mosaic virus so my first thought was hard they misspelled tobacco and they put babaco (laughs) (laughs) they're gonna feel really stupid and then I immediately felt really stupid because I googled babaco and realized that it's actually a thing um it's a kind of fruit. It's found in Ecuador as well as other places, sort of nearby. It's it's quite rare. I think it's actually endangered, perhaps. Um, and it looks a little bit like a pawpaw, so if you look outside, it's yeah. it's kind of more it's paler and yellow, but it's sort of the similar size and uh, shape. Yeah, it's actually a um, a hybrid of a two different pawpaw, so Carica species. To get this tobacco mm. thing, it's
0: but the, the, the fruit they to me look like cocoa fruit, but green. Like in in cocoa, you have these massive yellow seed pods things, and these are massive green seed pods. Um, if you would just show me the picture of the seed pods, I would or the fruit, I would have thought um, this is like unripe cocoa
1: okay that's a man who's never seen a pawpaw in his life because clearly this looks like a yellow pawpaw yeah i don't know what a pawpaw is there we go um or a papaya um it's basically that it's it grows in sort of cooler environments but it is in fact able to be eaten as well so i then watched a 10 minute youtube video of a man tasting his first babaco fruit And he said, it was good, but had an unpleasant aftertaste. I think I started getting used to it because I kept drinking it. No iller (laughs) side effects recorded to date. So by all accounts, by this man, but also people who have been eating it for quite some time, it is edible and I guess fine. Mm -hmm. It's, Mm -hmm. It's grown for its fruit and it's grown to make fruit juice of it. And it's been cultivated sort of a bit around the world. So in New Zealand, England, Channel Islands, even in Italy. So...
0: It's a thing. It's called champagne fruit. I, I just found in like ten seconds of googling. What? Why does? It, is it called champagne fruit? Do you know?
1: So the man cut it open and he spent a lot of time describing the fact that the inside was very liquid and he himself was uncertain if he'd overripened his fruit or not. But he found the central part a little bit too liquid and unpleasant. So maybe it, it's sort of yellowy and liquid. Maybe it looks champagne-y. Mm-hmm. That's yeah. all I can come up with. Maybe it tastes like champagne. Who knows
0: i mean in in the article um that i i'm reading now while you're talking <laughs> um it has an uh, effervescent tangy taste and so it has this sort of in in the center it has a sort of bubbly bubbly champagne like quality and i think that's maybe where the, the the name's coming from
1: it just sounds like it's got good like promotional curry. i i really yeah. doubt that it actually tastes like i mean
0: I mean, champagne fruit really is like how much better marketing can you have than have <laughs> be, it being called already champagne fruit? I now want to try. It's definitely
1: tobacco. Doesn't sound particularly dignified as a name. Like it sounds cute, but it's not dignified.
0: Yeah, it sounds like if my my little one tries to pronounce the word tobacco and it's just like babaco. babaco. And Anyways. <laughs> yeah, that's that's really cool. Uh, I have something of sort of a possibility for our paper how to learn more why not use CRISPR (laughs) I know. I just found a a short story on the New York Times the many uses of CRISPR from uh, scientists tell all and I just want to share this because I found it cool that there is not one but two plant stories in there Um, very often when you talk in mainstream science reporting about CRISPR it's all about medical applications of it and they also have Mm -hmm. some stories here about sickle cell disease, COVID testing and cancer research but um, you have right at the top of the article it's talking about tomato research and the great use of CRISPR for um creating mutants in tomato and uh, doing basic research on them and then there's also a story about sorghum research um, as done by Karen Massel in Queensland, Australia where uh, they, she and her colleagues, they have used CRISPR to make sorghum frost tolerant heat tolerant, lengthen its growth period, shorten its growth period, uh, changing its root structure um, so they did all kinds of things to this important crop just using CRISPR um, in, in the lab. So I found out very cool that they have like not one but two features of plant science there in this sort of mainstream aimed uh, article about mm. the many applications of crispr and a nice picture of some black tomatoes as the header image so go check that, that out or, sh- or or share that with some friends who are not sick of hearing about crispr yet <laughs>
1: I have another short one and it's just about photonic pigments. So this is sort of following a theme that we've talked about for a while, which is this idea of structural, making colors in structural ways. So instead of just using a pigment, you use sort of bits and shapes and reflective parts to give extra, <laughs> extra color. Um, we talked about this in the context of some plant fruits, which actually have structural pigments. But generally speaking, photonic pigments, structural pigments, are sort of—they're also called effect pigments more commonly. They give us a whole lot of more colours, and and we use them regularly. We make sort of metallic or pearlescent, or you know, sort of shiny special effects with these different pigments. So it's used for things like um, makeup, even or. Uh-huh. Um, painting cars so this kind of really bright shininess (laughs) we have this is using these sort of extra you know textured pigments they have an extra shine to them right
0: Yeah, yeah, I always played uh, back in the day, uh, Need for Speed Underground 2, I think, and you could tune up your car there, and you had a massive choice of uh, car colors and also different structures from just like glossy to matte to um, really stuff like uh, pearlescent, iridescent, and so you could now... So
1: that's the ones, yeah, so when you're going into not just like shiny, but like fully like Sparkles and like, yeah, per- pearlescent. This is when you're starting to use these photonic pigments. Um, so this is again this kind of structural idea. As yeah, cars, textiles, cosmetics, food. Um, the problem is potentially that they often use synthetic polymers they often use sort of complex methods and as with everything we're interested in seeing if they can be made more sustainably so i just wanted to very briefly mention that there is a paper that came out in natcom's nature communications um, and it's cellulose photonic pigments and they're just showing that they have managed to use cellulose which is what the most abundant polymer in the world i guess um the the thing that forms the cell walls of plants and they've managed to make these cellulose nanocrystal suspensions um, within emulsified micro droplets. They then like sort of dry the droplets and this causes them to buckle in on themselves and this sort of further contracts this nanostructure, which gives it super cool kind of, um, yeah, angles basically. And you can get these very bright, shiny photonic pigments from that.
0: Cool, it reminds me of a a story we had a while ago about um, glitter made from cellulose as well. It's pretty
1: similar, I think, yeah. Yeah,
0: I think there they didn't use nano droplets or anything like that. They they had sort of sheets of cellulose that they would dry like a long film and then they would break up the film into different sized glitters. And then they would have a biodegradable glitter that had the same quality like plastic glitter would have. Um, So it's cool that we have more and more like... Uh, fancy cellulose versions available now that we can that we can play with
1: Just as I mentioned, this this uh, paper does have some nice figures which have these little tiny shiny like it looks like little opals honestly they have close-ups <laughs> of these little structures and they're just yeah it looks really cool
0: from these photo pigments to artificial photosynthesis I found a story <laughs> about um pretty much putting us out of business because they found a way to grow foods and, and, and yeah, make bio, biomass, biomaterials, without the use of photosynthesis. Um, which is so we don't need plants anymore. Um, if we follow this research. So what they did is uh, that, or the main problem that they tackled is that photosynthesis, while being very amazing and really hard to imitate, is not that efficient. From all of the sunlight that hits the Earth, around 1% is converted into biomass that can then be used downstream for other stuff. Um, The vast majority of the energy is either straight up reflected or turned into heat or otherwise dealt with by the plant without making it into biomass. Um, we often talk about the great length that plants go through to protect themselves from sunlight because they really can't deal with too much of it and that's why like it's efficient enough that plants can grow quite effectively but if you want to maximize the uh the, the system and want to get the most out of output out of it from the energy that you put in there you would want to improve the 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 efficiency there, and that's why people are trying to do artificial photosynthesis. And in this case, they managed to build um, an electrolysis cell where they put carbon dioxide and water on one end, and then electricity that you can generate from renewable sources, and then it would convert convert the CO two into uh, acetate and oxygen. So the acetate is now an organic compound that uh, that things can eat and o- uh, oxygen is also pretty good for us um, for us to breathe so they are also making oxygen, just like plants would make it and then on the acetate they can grow a number of uh, organisms they you can strip just grow uh, bacteria on it but we don't have that many products that we eat from bacteria but when we look at, right, at fungi or yeast there's more stuff that we can eat and then you can even feed some algae on acetate and then use their biomass to eat it for example like uh, spirulina, spirulina algae and others as well Uh, And they say in the paper that you can even do that for some plants... Here it goes into a little bit like uh, sci-fi. Um, so in the paper, what they did is they grew a number of crops on um, on acetate um, just to see uh-huh. if they could grow. And they found that um, some plants can grow. Like Arabidopsis, for example, doesn't do so well on only acetate and then in the dark. So importantly, they would put the plants on acetate as a carbon source and not give them any light to make their own carbon from carbon dioxide. Um, but tomato, tobacco, rice, pepper, um, canola, they were able to... Um, oh, I, I see a cowpea and Arabidopsis to some extent as well. Uh, I was wrong there. Um, they can grow on acetate and then incorporate the carbon coming from acetate in all important molecules within their cells. So, so theoretically you can make then the acetate from carbon dioxide from the air using electricity which has a much higher um efficiency and then grow in the dark crops from it and this um in the paper they only did that to lettuce and they used lettuce calluses and lettuce and tissue culture which are not both not very good so calluses is this undifferentiated tissue sort of like stem cell tissue um which is is good because you can use that in liquid culture which is good for such an experiment but it th- doesn't feed us and lettuce also doesn't have any calories so it doesn't feed us yet um but potentially in the future you could come up with systems where you can then actually grow crops from that and of course it's interesting uh, on multiple levels that uh this the whole story was pu- was published by the way in in nature food and uh this is interesting for stuff like urban agriculture we can use electricity generated in urban environments and then in sort of warehouses without any light necessary you can grow food from the acetate that you made efficiently in these electrolysis chambers Um, and they even go so far as to use it for space travel they entered this in the there's like a nasa competition for finding the best way to grow food in space and they Um, were awarded a prize in the first tier of this assessment so now Mm -hmm. they will do further stuff but potentially you could just have solar panels on the outside of your spacecraft they would make electricity you would then convert carbon dioxide and water into acetate and then feed fungi microorganisms or plants in the dark or at least without any artificial grow light um on these uh, acetates and then they would grow and make biomass that, that people can eat and so this is very interesting from this sort of sci-fi standpoint i'm still i'm always like
1: okay but for, sorry for the plants for the plants you basically still need to have the light on right because they will just stop growing in the dark
0: yeah that's exactly the thing that i wondered when reading this paper because they say that they grew tobacco in the dark on um on acetate, and the, the acetate was labeled uh, so the, with 13C, so you could see where it ends up in the plants. So you could see that the acetate ended up in the tobacco, but I couldn't find anything about how tall would they grow the plants? Like, if they do that on seedlings or small plants, I can imagine that it works, but this is not... Like, we want big plants. If we want them for biomass or for for food, we want big plants. And you are much more of an expert there than I am because you actually grew plants in the dark and you know how much they like it or hate it. So I, I imagine that they don't grow as well and as fast and as tall as you would do that with plants that see the light.
1: Yeah, I mean they they don't really like growing in the dark. Unsurprisingly, I mean some some algae's you can right. This is a this is a known thing, but generally speaking, they kind of stop growing. They just halt. Yeah, um, tobacco will keep on growing for a few days and then stop. At least mature ones, they have sort of enough energy that they keep on like growing for a bit. But Arabidopsis tends to stop pretty fast. So
0: yeah, but maybe if they have acetate, they continue because then they have energy. But yeah, that's that's something I couldn't find from the paper. Like, uh, that, that's something where, as a sort of plant scientist and not an um, uh, electrochemistry ch- expert, I'm very, like, cautious. Or ca- uh, like, I have my doubts that you can efficiently grow plants in the dark um, to significant amounts of biomass, even if you give them some sort of carbon, for example, like acetate. Um, I
1: guess it depends on what you're... I mean, you can make, like, a tylated crappy. Bean shoots, right? But that's not what...
0: But you want good fruit right and you want also with the tomatoes and i think also even with the tomatoes for example the i think light is necessary for the transition from unripe to ripen tomatoes from the change from
1: yeah yeah sure sure so
0: all of these things for
1: most fruits you need this the sun to get like the 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 fruit to ripen right but yeah
0: but maybe you, you, you need less artificial light then you need like sort of some light as a trigger but you don't need um as much light input that the plants can then actually photosynthesize because they don't rely on photosynthesis. You only need the light to sort of do all the secondary stuff. But I don't know. So it's it's. But
1: they still okay. I know.
0: <laughs> it's it's kind of it's kind of a big story for artificial photosynthesis. As somebody who really likes plants and sort of non-artificial photosynthesis. I have my doubts about sort of the scaling of this. Um, it's, it's really cool and I really appreciate that it works in a lab, but I, I wouldn't hold my breath until we have greenhouses in the dark that have solar panels on top to make acetate and then feed that to the plants and then have significant crop output.
1: Yoram, if you have a plant and the the global temperature is getting too hot, as David Attenborough told us earlier today, um, <laughs> everything's getting hot. Your plant's getting stressed. You want to increase the heat tolerance in the plant. What would you do?
0: Um, what is going like? Um, maybe just first knock out some like heat shock proteins or heat shock factors, so the plant doesn't realize it's hot um some of these things that are the sensors for heat uh, like heat sensing and then going into sort of response to that and closing stomata or whatever they do
1: even Hopefully. easier than that give it a little bit of ethanol <laughs> if your plants want to deal with the heat you just got to get them a bit drunk so this is a paper that came out in plant molecular biology it's called ethanol induces heat tolerance in plants by stimulating unfolded protein response And basically, they showed just that. um, Pre-treating Arabidopsis with low concentrations of ethanol, so alcohol, basically increases the tolerance of the plants without making them grow less. So this is kind of a win. You're getting more heat tolerance, but you're not having a growth penalty.
0: So you're slightly stressing it. It's like some of its proteins are messed up a little bit. They realize that and then they grow with a little bit hardier and more tolerant to heat
1: yeah it's maybe it's some sort of priming so what they did is they did some transcriptome analysis they looked at what how the genes were responding to the ethanol and they found it was sort of upregulating processes that were involved in an unfolded protein response um so this is basically kind of um uh, dealing with stress and cleaning up the problems of stress. So basically, it was yeah preempting the plants to deal with stress by giving them a little bit of alcohol. Um mm-hmm. it's a little bit unclear why this is happening. I'm not sure what exactly the the full pathway of signaling is there. It could just be something very basic and straightforward, like, Ethanol makes the plants feel a little bit more dehydrated than they otherwise would. And usually they associate dehydration with heat. So this is like part of a normal pathway that is, you know, yeah. drought is associated with heat. Like this could just be something like that. Um, but overall, the authors sort of say there's been these definitions of these, these um, explorations into how we can chemically prime plants to have these responses so you know if we know a hot day is coming can we prime the plants so that they're ready for it before it comes (laughs) um using chemicals but using things that we know are sort of safe and i guess we know that ethanol is relatively safe for us as humans Mm -hmm. anyway
0: but they did that on the seeds so we, we can't just like have a pina colada for the farmer and some ethanol sprayed on the crops in the field
1: uh they were still putting it into the soil they were like watering them with it basically i think ah. so oh
0: ah, okay so yeah
1: yeah root uptake of ethanol so
0: okay <laughs> still a, a weird imagination to to spray whole crops um with ethanol but if it helps yeah. i have uh, a story about uh, a new algae that was found. So Jessica Nelson is a researcher or a former researcher in Fairway Lee's lab in uh, the state of New York in the United States, and she was um, collecting hornwort samples, uh, like plants, uh, in the um, in the state of New York, and they were looking for symbiotic cyanobacteria. These hornworts they are often found together. We see cyanobacteria, and they started isolating and growing several different organisms that they found on these hornworts, and they found a green alga showing up on there and they, they were surprised because they couldn't immediately recognize it. And then they did some genetic analysis and they found that the genome of it had some very specific structures. It ha- was like highly repetitive. It had quite a lot of DNA coming from fungi and bacteria and they realized then that this was a completely new species that wasn't described before. Um, and they sort of found it by accident. They were looking for something else. They were looking for the cyanobacteria, and then they found this green alga that they then analyzed. And the interesting thing about this is not only that they found a new new species, but it made the news now because they then looked for a name and th- that was like a bit like that was a- around a year ago. And with like, the pandemic and the sale of the world, everything was kind of bleak. And then they heard the um, poem from Amanda Gorman for the inauguration of Joe Biden. And this was a very beautiful um, uh, poem read by the 24-year-old Amanda Gorman. Or I think back then she was 23. And... Um, they were felt so inspired that they named the alga after Amanda Gorman. And so now um, it's called yella Terricola. And it's, yeah, a, a newly found, like newly found genus, not even only that one species uh, um, or like this one species defining this, this genus um, that's named after the poet uh, Amanda Gorman. And I found that quite nice. And we're linking to both like the story of the research and The poem itself so you can read it it's too long for me to read it right now but um, there's a link where you can find the full text for it
1: is there a reason they named it after her like it just it was like something delightful in times of yeah low times.
0: They, they l- weren't sure what to name it for a long time and then they, they watched the inauguration speech and then they said it was actually, um, I think, a student in the lab that came up with the idea, a graduate student, um, uh, Tanner Robinson, who came up with the idea of naming it after um, Amanda Gorman for giving this beautiful speech, this uh, reading this, this poem. Uh, they, they said it's called the, the Hill We Climb and it's sort of, Uplifting, optimistic poem about uh, going through hardship and then, uh, yeah, moving to a better future, and that's that's inspired them, and that's why they cha- they picked this name.
1: joram do you know what island syndrome is?
0: The syndrome that you feel like you are alone on an island and nobody cares.
1: Uh, it's a little bit less depressing and a bit more <laughs> biological. Um, so basically, it's the fact that organisms that you find on islands tend to be be a little bit weird. Mm. So they've they've sort of been in these isolated conditions. They have very different and very specific ecological pressures. They might have, you know, no other predators on the island. They might have, you know, mild climates or just very unique situations. So they sort of like turn out differently from their very closely related species that are Mm -hmm. not on islands. So the example are that like something that would normally be like an average size or even a small organism suddenly becomes quite giant when it's on an island. Um, In the Wikipedia article the example is a cassowary which I don't know if you know it's this huge big turkey like huge bird (laughs) like a meter plus tall that's found in Australia and in New Guinea and Indonesia. And they're saying this is basically an example of island gigantism where it's just become huge for mm. weird reasons. So this is, this is pretty well described and well known in animals, um, the idea of becoming either gigantic or dwarfed, um, so really big or really, really small. Other examples are, for example, the giant tortoises on the Galapagos Islands. Like, why do you need a tortoise that big is quite unclear. <laughs> Um.
0: <laughs> I've heard about this uh, in the context of Hawaii, that they, um, the plants there, they lack some of the predators that you see on the mainland uh, of related species, and therefore they, mm-hmm. they lost a lot of their defenses and ha- grew happily on Hawaii until people transported other plants and pests and other things on there and suddenly the native flora is unable to defend themselves because they had this isolated island where they didn't have to deal with the challenges they had to deal with or have to deal with now um, with the movement of people and plants and and pests and all kinds of other things.
1: Yeah. So, I mean, generally speaking, I think this is more described for animals than plants, just because everything is, but you've just sort of given already one example that this is something that happens in plants as well. Before we move to that, I do want to mention Malagasy hippopotamus, which is an, I think now extinct species of tiny, tiny hippopotamus um, that was found <laughs> on an island. So again, the same thing, like he was on an island and just sort of evolved to be a little bit different than the other hippopotami. So, But as you mentioned, this is also found in plants and it sort of follows a similar pattern to what we see in the insular mammals. So you have this largeness happening on species that are otherwise small and smallness happening in otherwise large um sort of groups it's also quite common that plants get kind of lazy so you mentioned this lack of toxicity the example that's given here is that they just sort of don't really bother making flowers they just make kind of crappy flowers where anybody can visit or just like go back to self-pollination because they just you know, life is pretty sweet on the island is basically the take-home message. Yeah. But um, what I want to talk about today is one specific genus. It is called Scalesia, um, and it's a genus that's endemic to the Galapagos Islands. So you have giant tortoises already there, but you also have this Scalesia. And Scalesia actually belongs to the order Astorale. Do you know which order this is? Do you know what type of plants that might be?
0: Asterali is, is, in German we call him Astern, but is it that? Ast- I don't know. A- Asters?
1: Yeah, so basically, I mean, it's it's the, the large group that includes um, things like daisies and sunflowers. So we mm. have this kind of, like, basically it's a daisy group. So if we think of the asteroids itself, um Yeah ton of plants in the asteroids, 80,000 species, about a third of the total flowering plants. But generally speaking, we think of small little, not even shrubs. I mean, small things that grow out of the ground. Um, It's got lots of different flowering plants from forget-me-nots, nightshades, eggplants, but like generally kind of small, yeah?
0: Mm Mm-hmm.
1: So it's... Scalesia, they have decided that even though they're asteroids, um, they're asterales, they are still going to be trees. Um, it has <laughs> about 15 species. They are shrubs. Sometimes they're trees. They grow super, like, fairly tall. I mean, they look like trees. If you look at them, you wouldn't say, oh, that's a daisy plant. You would say, that's a eucalypt, maybe. I'm not sure. Like, it's it's a huge tree. They have woods. They're sort of, you know, a soft and pithy but they've been called the Darwin's finches of the plant world because they are very dramatically different from species to species. Um, they're also called giant daisies because they are, in fact, giant daisies. They just are <laughs> ridiculous, honestly. Um, definitely go and have a look at these because just, just to see how stunningly clear it is that they're not really what you would expect them to be. Um, And yeah, I just wanted to sort of mention them because there is a new paper out which is looking at sort of the genetic features between behind these giant daisies. They're called Darwin's giant daisies even. It looks at one specific species, Scalesia, oh my goodness, Atratiloides. I'm going to say. And they just basically um, did a sort of a genome analysis and tried to look at the different genes and elements across um, the genome that might give signatures for, for example, the growth. the vascular development that you might need for being a, a big giant plant and things like that. So that's <laughs> a paper that has just come out in Natcom's in this last week as well. But yeah, to me, just <laughs> finding out about these completely bizarre plants was yeah. super interesting.
0: <laughs> yeah. I'm just looking at pictures on, of, of these daisy trees and it's like somebody, it looks like somebody made it up because you have all of these little daisy flowers on top of a, Tree. It's a bushy thing, it has a stem, and then you have the daisy flowers on top of there. Um it's
1: just ridiculous. I mean it's <laughs> yeah. shameful.
0: I now want to have a private island where I isolate some random plants and animals for thousands of years, and then just look how weird they become. How,
1: yeah, sorry. The other thing about this is that, um, one of the species, so Scalesia pendunculata, so this is one of these like big, strong, sl- slender trees, they can get to be 20 meters tall. Um, they they grow in these sort of dense stands, so almost like forest-like structures, but they also. Acts like daisies in another way in, in that they're like they'll take 15 years to mature, so they they grow sort of at tree rate almost. But then something will happen and they'll all just die suddenly. So the whole woodland will collapse. There might be a drought. There might be too much rain. Um, in the the 80s, there was just an El Nino event. Um, previously in the 30s and the 40s, there was something else. We don't even know what. And they just all suddenly die. And then they just start again, which also is kind of got that, you know, these daisy plants, you think of them as more being annual or something. They only last for mm-hmm. a year. These ones are doing it just like... Same thing, but as trees, just like growing for fifteen years, or like growing for twenty years, or thirty years, or forty years, and then something happens, and they're <laughs> all just like. So they're also all kind of the same age. There's not like a, an age structure because they all just like knock themselves out, and then they pop up again and again have sort of sibling age structure and. <laughs> <laughs> truly ridiculous. I mean. <laughs> really, mm.
0: really ridiculous plants. <laughs> Cat Fact.
1: And the Cat Fact this week is brought to you by a cat fact that Yaron wanted to mention previously, but well, it was too depressing to mention, but now we have no cat facts and therefore <laughs> we're going to talk about the, I guess the, the commonly known thing was that there has now been a an incident of COVID transferred directly from a cat to a human. Um, It was known before that cats could get COVID. There were some examples quite early on in the pandemic that cats had covid when their their owners were very covidy um but this is the first example of covid sort of being traceable from cat yeah to the human as opposed to from the human to the cat um, but to be honest
0: i'm not that surprised because I've, I've read already like years ago before the whole covid story that um cold viruses uh flu viruses can survive in the cat they, not really ma- they don't really make the cats sick, but they survive in the cat's respiratory system and then can get passed yeah, back from so the cat is, to humans human. So taking these two together, like cats can have the, the COVID virus and we know from the past that cats can sometimes give viruses back to humans. Is that too surprising that now we have found evidence that... And this is this That's is not a like a scenario
1: comment. where it jumped from the cat it's not like a new thing that jumped from the cat to the human as like you know the way it jumped from bats or whatever yeah. we decided it pangolins or whatever it's just a cat got covid probably from its owners and then as it turns out it actually just sneezed directly in the face of the vet or whoever was caring for it and then that person became COVID. so the cat came from a covid positive family it was carrying the covid the cat sneezed directly into the face of somebody and they get COVID. Um, yeah, I think the moral of the story is <laughs> try not to let your cat sneeze in your face. But I mean, also, this, these things happen. Um, hopefully, everybody is okay in the end. Yeah. Hopefully. And while maybe I know, know that
0: cuddling with a cat is one of the best medicines in the in existence, maybe if you have COVID, try not to cuddle as closely with your cat. I know that. I mean, I've I've, I've read articles years ago about the flu and how if you have the flu or if you have a cold. Maybe don't cuddle as much with your cat because then the cat might still carry it and then reinfect you a couple of weeks later what, really? with, the, with the same virus, which is it's something that is very rare to happen, but it's something that can happen according to. Yeah.
1: Okay, but I read a study that said that cat purr vibrations can be soothing.
0: Yeah, so it's, it's a really fine line. Like you, What you need is a tiny little mask for your cat. You need to don't t- t- ask <laughs> your
1: cat. Leave your poor cats alone. Yeah. Um. That is all. That's all the things we have today. If you want to find us, we have a website. It's www.plantsandpets.com.
0: And you can reach out to us on social media. On Twitter, you can talk to me. That's at plantsandpets.
1: And on Facebook, sometimes and Instagram, sometimes you can find me. It's at plantsandpets.
0: Thank you for listening. Our opening and closing music is Caravana by Philip Gross. And goodbye.
1: Bye.